This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation. We're resuming our trip through this peculiar, interesting, bizarre book. What is the book of Revelation? What is it? Well, a large chunk of it is pictures conveyed with words, metaphorically communicating to us what life will be like from the first century to the end of of human history. It creates expectations for what your life in this world is going to be like. It, um, It charges us with a mission as Christians and part of the church. We've got a job to do. But it also shapes our expectations for what it's going to be like as we engage in that mission. This middle section, and um, just by way of review, throw the outline up there. This middle section runs from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 16. And it's an intermingling of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Which are, on one hand, God's judgment, yes, levied out throughout our period of time here. Not just at the end, it does build to the end, but it's throughout This period of time from the first century to the end of human history. It is God's judgments. It's a taste of his judgment to come. At the same time, it's it's also a chastening of God's people. The interludes that are interspersed shift the spotlight onto exclusively the church. Here's what God's doing with us. Here's what God's doing with us. Here's what he's calling us to. Here's what life's going to be like. So we looked at that in chapter 7, was our first interlude. We'll get into the next one next week. But chapter 7 is an interlude, and it basically answers the question chapter 6 ended with. On the great day of the wrath of God and the Lamb, the final judgment, who can withstand that? Who can withstand that day? And chapter 7 answers the question, here's who can withstand that day of judgment. It is all those who have the name of the Lamb tattooed on their forehead. Not literally, metaphorically. This is your identity. This is your allegiance. This is what you go public with. Your love for the Lamb. Your devotion to the Lamb. That's who can withstand it. Now today, we're going to be jumping into the next series of judgments, of chastenings, when we look at the six trumpets. But before we get there, let me just rehash what we have with the seals. When Jesus begins to slit the seals in chapter 6, it begins to enact God's purposes for salvation and judgment. The four horsemen of the apocalypse bring forth things like war and civil strife and economic breakdown and death. They're designed to shatter the illusion that people can find true security in the borders of a nation or empire. It's designed to shatter the illusion that people can find security in a flourishing economy or even in their own health. 
Now, there are also pictures of martyrs in the fifth seal, which create the expectation that Christians are not promised immunity from suffering. Believers who take the word of God seriously, believers who take the testimony about Jesus seriously, will earn the deep hostility of the world. But we're also given a picture of judgments that occur throughout human history and culminate in the final judgment. These judgment visions are a promise that God will not allow injustice to continue forever, which is assuring to the victims but disturbing to the perpetrators. And they also warn us that no place on earth and no position of power or wealth will protect people from the judgment of God and the Lamb. Now we're also told in all this the role of prayer in bringing about God's rule and reign. God has so ordered his world that he responds to prayer. It wafts into heaven with the aroma of incense. It's pleasing to him. And our prayers play a role in God judging the world and bringing about his kingdom of righteousness. Now today, we're looking at the six trumpets. The trumpets do not depict something new in history, but they revisit the seals from a different perspective. I've mentioned this throughout. The seals, trumpets, and bowls are not successive, but cyclical. They take you from the first century to the end of the world, and then it backs the truck up and it does it again from a different angle. The trumpets are shifting the angle to focus on the nature of or the meaning of his judgments throughout human history. The meaning of or the commentary the trumpet judgments offers is that this is God judging the unbelieving world. Many judgments leading to a final judgment. The reason I say that is because the background to the trumpet judgments are the ten plagues that God unleashed in the people of Egypt, on the Egyptians. Let's dive into this. And we'll look at them one at a time. Get your Bibles open. Revelation chapter 8. We have the first trumpet in verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet. And there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. Now, each of these, I'm going to mention an Old Testament counterpart. An Old Testament counterpart to it. A possible natural meaning and a more likely metaphorical meaning for each of these. An Old Testament counterpart, a possible natural meaning and a more likely metaphorical meaning. Now, the Old Testament counterpart to this first trumpet is the seventh plague in Exodus 9. Let me just read it and listen. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail. Lightning flashed down to the ground, so the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Now, in this case, I think the natural meaning and the metaphorical meaning are similar. And if God is using the plagues of Egypt as the Old Testament background for these trumpet judgments, then they'll be very helpful in understanding what is meant by it. What happened with the hailstorm in Egypt? Well, it destroyed the vegetation. It's pretty much what's happening here. Vegetation was the Egyptians' food source. Now, in the Exodus account, just like here, God did restrain the impact of food loss By preserving the wheat and the rye. But the flax and barley were completely destroyed. 
So what we have here in the first trumpet is similar to what we have in the third seal. We have economic scarcity. We have hunger, a lack of food. Now remember, because Revelation is prophecy, it contains multiple fulfillment. Economic scarcity is something that has happened, will continue to happen, and will become more prevalent as time marches toward the end. Second trumpet, verses 8 and 9. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So John sees a picture of something that looks like a mountain thrown into the sea, which then turns to blood. The Old Testament counterpart to this trumpet judgment very likely is the first plague when the Nile River was turned to blood. Moses strikes the river with his staff. It turns to blood. The fish die. The river stank. The water became undrinkable. Possible natural meaning? Almost sounds like a volcanic eruption, doesn't it? Mountain on fire. The sea being filled with lava. Blood. The original readers of John's letter perhaps would have thought of the year 79 AD, just 15 years or so before John wrote Revelation, when uh, we have the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which buried Pompeii and devastated the Bay of Naples. Perhaps what we have here, natural disasters, natural disasters that greatly impact world economies, first century world, living creatures, sea creatures, the big part of the economy, destruction of ships. Sea trade, major part of how life was in the Mediterranean world. But notice something peculiar about what John sees. He says he saw something like a huge mountain. It wasn't a huge mountain, but something that resembled a huge mountain. John is entirely sure what he's seeing. He clearly doesn't have a category in his vocabulary for what he sees, so he's using something that's closest to it. So the best we can do is metaphorically describe what he's seeing. Now, what is the metaphorical meaning of this? Well, it could be something along the lines of um, the way in which the Old Testament sometimes talk about, talks about a mountain, referring to a kingdom. Jeremiah 51, verse 25, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, and I will make you a burned out mountain. This is referring to the judgment of Babylon. Now, Babylon is referred to 11 times in Revelation, even though at the time of writing this, Babylon was buried underneath 50 feet of sand. It didn't exist. But someone steeped in the Old Testament would associate political superpowers with Babylon. The Babylon of John's day was Rome. So John sees God taking the powers of the world and throwing them down. How are they thrown down? Well, the disruption of the trade network would have been devastating to Rome's sea-centered economy. This is the, the shaking of earthly power structures. It's a picture of the economic deterioration of superpowers, even the most affluent nations. The third trumpet, verses 10 and 11. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. So it's a fallen star, which leads to bitter water. Old Testament counterpart, likely the first plague again. Water becomes undrinkable. Natural meaning? 
Somehow the water becomes polluted, poisonous. It's necessary to live, but they don't have it anymore. Jeremiah chapter 9 We read this, therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, see, I will make this people eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. Perhaps that's our Old Testament background to this. Now, wormwood is a bitter herb. The star is called wormwood because in John's vision, it makes the water bitter. I think the metaphorical explanation could simply be the loss of drinking water. But perhaps better is the bitterness of suffering. The Old Testament phrase, the wormwood and the gall, was the phrase for lament, for the bitterness of suffering. And it didn't mean the water had become poisonous. It meant that people were in anguish, suffering. And so this is what God promises to give the world. Fourth trumpet, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. Now, just as an aside, I'm not sure life can continue if we lose a third of the sun. I'm not sure how that works exactly, but I'm not sure life can continue. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. So, if a third of the sun is out, how is it that a third of the day with it? I'm not sure how that works. If you work this literally, see what I mean? Work this literally, it becomes challenging. Very challenging. Well, darkness. We've got darkness. Old Testament counterpart, ninth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. And by the way, there was more than just a removal of visual sight going on there. There was a palpable spiritual darkness that descended upon the Egyptians. Now, the natural meaning here could be that John is seeing a picture of what happens during and after war or conquest when cities are smoldering and fields have been scorched and there are billows of black smoke filling the sky, making it dark. More than one commentator has made that observation throughout church history. Metaphorical explanation, even more important, spiritual blindness, spiritual darkness. God foretells that people will be diluted and led astray. Blinded by their idolatry, their hearts will be hardened against the Lord. So we have economic deterioration. We've got growing economic scarcity. We have the shaking of earthly power structures. We have got suffering. We've got spiritual darkness. Now, even though Christians live through this time that repeats itself in ever-increasing intensity, the focus of these judgments lands squarely on the unbelieving world. God is making a comment and he's making an exhortation to the unbelieving world. Now let's dive into the fifth trumpet. Chapter 8, starting in verse 13. It runs all the way through chapter 9, verse 12. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass, the earth, 
or any plant or tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions. And in in their tails, they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek is Apalluyan, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past. The other two woes are yet to come. There are dedicated Christians who teach that the Bible must always be interpreted as speaking literally. And when this principle is applied to Revelation 9, it produces results that are not helpful. To cite one example, best-selling author Hal Lindsey in Apocalypse Code informs us that the fifth trumpet describes attack helicopters that will be deployed in our time by the Chinese army. He arrives at this conclusion by taking the details of John's vision and seeking correspondence with some feature of our current world, even though that meaning would have absolutely no significance for John's original readers. I don't believe these invaders are natural forces in our world, such as armies or attack helicopters, because they are unleashed into history from a shaft of the bottomless abyss where demons dwell. Therefore, these locusts represent evil spiritual powers that are unleashed at God's will into our world. The imagery of this vision comes from two Old Testament sources. The first is the eighth plague from Exodus 10. So the theme of the Egyptian plagues continues. The other source is very likely Joel 2, which describes the coming of the Lord's judgment in terms of an invasion of locusts. Joel describes these large devouring grasshoppers as war horses bringing flames and destruction, comparing them to fierce warriors who charge and soldiers who scale a wall. Now, this demonic invasion adds gruesome features to Joel's vision. John compares the locusts to war horses who wear crowns of gold and possess human faces. The crowns depict victory and human faces show they are guided by irrational cunning. John adds that their hair is like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. Pleasing-looking female hair suggests seductive powers that in reality bring death. I don't have time to go through every detail of the locust description, but you get the point. We know John is not describing literal features because he uses the word like eight times. It was like this. Eight times. By the way, when I say something is metaphorical, symbolic, I don't mean it's not true. It is true. I also don't mean that because it's metaphorical or symbolic, we can't possibly know what it means. No, we can know what it possibly means. This trumpet symbolizes demonic torment inflicted on the minds and souls of the inhabitants of the earth who lack the seal of God's name on their thoughts and lives. Remember that in the book of Revelation, the phrase inhabitants of the earth is a technical name for the unbelieving world. The terrors and anxieties 
during a civilization's dissolution, such as Rome would undergo in the coming centuries, epitomize but do not exhaust the torments of heart and mind symbolized by the army of the fifth trumpet. This is a punishment on unbelievers. They alone get this crazy, spiritual, demonic, locust attack. This is a punishment on earth dwellers. Our battle as Christians in the church is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. Against the powers, the rulers, the principalities in the heavenly realms. Sixth trumpet. Let's pick it up in chapter 9, verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is very complicated. It's a strange text. And when people hear that we're preaching through Revelation, this is what they think about. Passages like this, they say, cool, you know, weird things like this. All throughout Revelation, we have understood its apocalyptic visions as presenting reality through symbolic pictures. So unless we're constrained to interpret a number or an image in a literal way, we'll seek its symbolic meaning. Why? Because that's how you interpret apocalyptic literature. And our great resource to interpret the visions is the same resource available to John and his original readers, the Old Testament. Additionally, the vision should be expected to have relevance to the original recipients of the letter, the Christians living in Asia Minor in the latter part of the first century. Now, let's get our heads around what God is saying to us in this sixth trumpet by asking the five basic questions. Who, what, when, where, why? Who, what, when, where, why? First, who? Now, back up to chapter 8, verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded 
by the other three angels. So we've had the first four trumpets. This is the setup for the final three trumpets. The three woes correspond to the final three trumpets. Who is being harmed by these three woes according to this verse? Answer, the inhabitants of the earth. This is Revelation's way of talking about the ungodly. This isn't those who live on earth versus those who live on Mars. This is those whose fundamental identity is bound up with life on earth. They can think of nothing else other than this life. This is who's harmed by the following three trumpets. Who's doing the harming? In the first woe, a star falls from heaven, and the star is given a key to the abyss. In chapter 9, verse 14, we learn the name of the star. It's Abaddon in Hebrew, Apaluyan in Greek. This is Satan. Satan is unleashing the demonic hordes. Unbelievers are being harmed, and Satan and his minions are doing the harming. Another way to think of this is Satan is not your friend. Just because you pledge allegiance to him doesn't mean he's out looking out for your good. Now notice also, though, that Satan has no authority except that which God sovereignly allows him to wield. The second woe, the sixth trumpet, is likewise. Those doing the harming are demonic hordes. Those being harmed are unbelievers. Second question, what? And we're not meant to try to figure out every detail as if every image has a specific correspondence in my aspect of the 21st century world. Like the breastplate represents a tank. It's a bad way to figure out what Revelation's talking about. The picture, and you have to think of them as pictures, is not a literal one. It's just giving a graphic, gruesome, vivid, shocking picture of what this judgment looks like. So we don't want to be too precise. Look at the number in verse 16. The NIV has 200 million mounted troops. Literally in the original, it's double myriad upon myriads. An incalculable multitude. More than you can imagine. One commentator somewhat humorously put it this way. says, the cavalry armies are like the rest of this scene not to be taken literally. No age in history has yet seen the devastating coincidence of, on the one hand, pagan idolatry as the dominant religion, and on the other hand, 200 million fire-breathing snake-tailed horses rampaging out of Mesopotamia. He puts it humorously, but he's got a point. We're not tuning into the news at night to see when the lion-headed, fire-breathing, snake-tailed horses are coming out of China. It's a picture. The horses have lion's heads because they're predators. They have tails like snakes because they're from the devil. Revelation works like this. It piles metaphor on top of metaphor, image on top of image. Not to confuse us, but to give us a more shocking, compelling picture. This is a demonic horde going out to kill, and more than that, to deceive Verse 17, the horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. Out of their mouths come fire, smoke, and sulfur. Chapter 1, we're told something's coming out of the mouth of Jesus. What is it? It's a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, what normally comes out of one's mouth? The most frequent thing to come out of one's mouth are words. A sharp double-edged sword is not really a comforting image. It's it's meant to be threatening. 
Why? Because Jesus is a threatening figure in the book of Revelation. Yes, he's velveted, but he's also heavy. His words are authoritative. They're decisive. They're the end of it. So what sort of words do you suppose issue forth from the mouths of Satan's minions? Words of deception. Words of destruction. Lies. People are being led astray and ultimately killed because they are believing lies about the evil one. Third question, when? (laughs) This is the hardest question. When do these woes take place? Chronology and revelation is very difficult to pin down. So let me give you a very strong, wishy-washy answer. The sixth trumpet is partially present and mostly future. (laughs) This trumpet gives the beginning of the end. Some of that beginning may be presently experienced. Most of it's still to come. I think it's partially present because only a third of mankind is killed. These thirds, again, are not literal percentages. It's Revelation's way of saying this is a limited judgment. This is a restrained judgment. This is not final judgment. So it seems to be partially happening now. People are being killed and that happens. But it seems like there's an exclusively future part to this fulfillment as well. And I get that from verse 15. The four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So it speaks of this very hour, this very day, this very month, this very year. Seems to be a specific time, a one-time fulfillment. Now, the reason I think most of this is future is that it, it should be following the pattern of the seven seals. And we saw once we got to the sixth seal, we are at the end of human history. In the sixth trumpet, I believe we're at the end of human history. Fourth question, where? Verse 14, it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Let's orient ourselves. Take a look at the map. You know the Fertile Crescent, region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. This is what this verse is talking about. We got mention of the Euphrates River. Um... Chapter 9 and chapter 16 mention that some end-time conflict is coming from the Euphrates River. And this has caused a lot of well-meaning, but I think mischievous interpretations over the years. Because it has caused a lot of Christians being very tuned into the Middle East. Gulf War I, Gulf War II, etc. It's tempting to think the end is coming from Iraq. That's what it says, Euphrates River. So think with me for a moment. If we do not expect literal lion-headed horses and a scorpion-locust invasion, we don't expect locusts with long hair like women and faces like men, if we don't literally expect those things, why should we literally expect that this final judgment come from the literal Euphrates River? It's not meant to be taken literally. If you don't believe me, do you really expect a literal whore of Babylon riding on top of a beast? It makes a great movie. It really does. But I'm afraid not much more. We're dealing with a book that explains itself in images and pictures and Old Testament symbolism. So with that in mind, let's think about the significance of Euphrates River as it's spelled out for us in the scriptures. What is the story of the Euphrates River in the Old Testament scriptures? In 722, 
the nation of Assyria crossed the Euphrates River as they descended upon the northern kingdom of Israel and sacked it. In 586 BC, Babylon crossed the Euphrates River, descended upon the southern kingdom of Judah, and sacked the city of Jerusalem. How do you think the Jewish people felt about that general area of the world? In John's time, the first century, Rome's chief rival and primary threat was Parthia. Guess where it resided? on the other side of the Euphrates River. Euphrates became a shorthand way of saying, that's where trouble comes from. It became a symbol of judgment and defeat. Is it going to come from across the Euphrates River? Maybe, maybe not. It's not the point. Fifth and final question, we'll close with this, why? Why does God unfetter this demonic attack of death and destruction? Why? There's two reasons. Number one, this is an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment. Whenever you read of fire and sulfur, you've got to think bad things. God is not happy. There's only one other place in the scriptures where this triplet of fire, smoke, and sulfur occurs. And that's with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of judgment. Revelation is thick with the theme of judgment. And I'll tell you what, it is one of the most controversial, nauseating, unpalatable topics we can talk about in 21st century America. Because in 21st century America, the standard is not an authoritative source outside me. In 21st century America, the standard are my own personal feelings, my tastes, my preferences, my intuitions. That's the standard. Anything, anything that critiques my personal feelings, sentiments, intuitions, preferences, tastes, is to be canceled. The theme of judgment, the topic of judgment, is one of the most nauseating, unpalatable topics we could talk about in 21st century America, which means it's one of the most important topics we could talk about. The second reason God unfetters this is for the purpose of repentance. Just listen to it. The whole section ends with these two verses. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands, which suggests this is why he's doing it. This is the purpose of it. 
They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, or sexual immorality, or their thefts. You'd think they would. After living through this, you'd think they would. How hard is the human heart? See, every tragedy, every catastrophe, Every natural disaster, every death by cancer or violence or old age is a divine summons to repent. It is a wake-up call. These images of judgment are designed to unsettle complacent people, perhaps like those in Sardis and Laodicea or Mequon and Cedarburg, Grafton and Port Washington. Lewis put it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Some of you could get up here and say, I've been in that pain. And I've heard God shouting. And while I'm not glad for the pain... I'm glad I heard God's voice. And I'm better because of it. And there may be others, even here today, you're in that pain, but you're not listening. You're not listening to God. And when we curse God in our pain, we drown out the good shepherd's voice who's saying to us, come to me, my sheep. Hear my voice, come. Look, nobody gets to heaven on flowery beds of ease. Nobody looks back over their life and says, you know, when I really grew as a person, the moment when I really grew as a Christian was when I took that vacation to... Everybody needs rest. I like vacation. But those who look back at the end of their lives will say, the time I grew the most are those moments and seasons when I was saying, this is so hard. But I learned so much. The sad truth is, when the end comes, it'll be too late. As the end approaches, many people will be hardened instead of chastened, just like the plagues of Egypt. The ten plagues hardened Pharaoh's heart. So even when he's surrounded by death and destruction and despair and God shouting in our pain, some of us are just going to get hard. And we're not going to give up our idolatry, anger, or immorality. And that's not an exhaustive list in verse 20. That's just an example. Listen, the sad truth is that some people don't bounce up when they hit rock bottom. When they hit rock bottom, they start digging. They go farther down. They don't change. They get hardened. And a lot of people wonder and they ask me, why did this tragedy happen? Or why was I sinned against? Or why was this natural disaster? Why did this evil or corruption? You know, why, 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 why? Is it God's discipline? Is it God's punishment? Was there something wrong with me? Why questions are always the hardest questions. There are some things you can say when someone asks a why question. You can say, well, God is sovereign. God is good. And those are true But tracing the exact line of progression from God's hand to the hardship in your life is not usually helpful. Can I say that again? 
Christian, so we don't get too preoccupied with that. Tracing the exact line of progression from God's hand to the hardship in your life is not usually helpful. Why? Because the response God wants from us is still the same, regardless. And while this text, really the entire book of Revelation, makes it clear that God's hand is behind everything in some way, the focal point here lies elsewhere. The focal point lies in what our response will be to these hardships. That's where the focal point lies. Repentance or continuing down the path of hard-heartedness. We have not heard all that God has to say to us until we have heard his command to repent. And repentance is difficult. Nobody likes to be told, hey, die to yourself, kill sin. That's what repentance means. It's a lot easier to gather a crowd by telling them if they have enough faith, they'll be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Every tragedy, every catastrophe, every natural disaster, every death by cancer or violence or old age is a divine summons to repent. The year 2020 has been one of unrest. We haven't started 2021 all that much better. Keep this in mind. Every tragedy, every catastrophe, every natural disaster, every death by cancer or violence or old age is a divine summons to repent. You want to know what God is up to? We just read it. Wilhelmissa Brockel was a Dutch pastor, lived in the 1600s. He has some sobering words for us. He writes, You who are careless, insensitive, comfortable in your sin, carnal, worldly-minded, fornicators, adulterers, proud boasters, gamblers, drunkards, liars, backbiters, hypocrites, and disobedient rejecters of the gospel, hear and take notice. How do you think you fare? I assure you that you will be summoned to judgment just as you are. You will see the Lord Jesus in glory, sitting as your judge upon the throne of his glory. The call will go out to you, Adam, where art thou? What have you done? You will then tremblingly appear, and there the history of your life will be read to you. This will silence you, And the judge will look upon you in wrath and in anger will address you as a cursed one. Therefore, repent now and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. May the almighty God now cause you to come tremblingly to the Lord and his goodness so that you may stand in that day before the son of man with great liberty and joy when he will come in his glory. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I want to show you a story of a woman in our congregation 
who heard the voice of God in her pain, who when she hit rock bottom did not start digging, but looked up to find her good shepherd calling to her. Take a look. As a child, I was impacted by family members, mental illnesses, unfaithfulness, and my parents' bitter divorce. By the time I was a teenager, I was lying, stealing, drinking, using drugs, and I had chosen a very rebellious lifestyle. Being raised in a conservative, loving family, I was in places that I knew I didn't belong, and I did things that I never imagined I was even capable of doing. I struggled with suicidal thoughts, and I pretty much hated the person that I saw in the mirror. I was in and out of drug treatment centers and relapsed, and every time I relapsed, ended up using a harder drug. And in my third treatment center, I relapsed and was sent to a long-term inpatient adolescent treatment center that was out of state. And what was supposed to be a six-month recovery program turned into 17 months of psychological, emotional, and sometimes physical abuse. By the time I returned home, I was brainwashed and broken. I was afraid of rejection. I had a fear of abandonment. I was afraid to die and pretty much afraid to live. And I was really good at masking all of that. And on the outside, appearing like everything was okay, but on the inside, I was... I was lost. I had attended church my whole life. I was confirmed, but I always felt like an outsider. I knew God was real, but I thought he loved everyone else, but he couldn't love me, and I was unworthy of his love. And by now with all the things that I had done, definitely out of reach. My mom had started attending a non-denominational church while I was away the last time. And she dragged me to church with her. And I remember one Sunday morning, my eyes being opened to this amazing love joy that flowed from the people there. And what they had was what I had been searching for in all the wrong places. And they were so kind to me and I didn't think I deserved their kindness. And that morning I realized that God loved them but he also loved me and that Jesus died for them, but he also died for me. 
And I knew I would never be good enough to deserve his love, but his love was great enough for me, just as I was. And I was baptized. And I remember coming up from the water and feeling like all of my sins were being washed away. I was white as snow. The old had gone. And God was giving me a new life and a future and a hope and a purpose. I believe God has blessed me far beyond what I deserve. And he did not let me die in my sin. And he's given me a life that I never could have imagined I could have. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. If you hit rock bottom, don't dig. Don't dig. The good shepherd is calling to you. The good shepherd's calling. Come to me. Come to me. Don't clean up your act first. Don't try to fix your problems first. Come to me. Come to me. The offer of rest, the offer of hope is there. God is shouting to you in your pain. Don't dig. Look up. Look up. Look up. And the beautiful thing about looking up, the beautiful thing about looking up is that Jesus is the one who then brings you up. Jesus brings you up. You don't bring yourself up. Jesus brings you up. And when you get there, you realize there's healing, there's joy, there's peace. And you realize there's a celebration. The old is gone. The new has come. Amen to that? Amen.